videos. Uh, some of you already know this, but the Tuesday nights, the men's group uh, did start the Science and Faith brief series last Tuesday. Uh, that is still open, so if any of you all are interested in that. Uh, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock up on the second floor. We're going to do cosmology this week, quantum physics the next, and then five weeks. I know some of you run, right, as far as you can. And then five months on the uh, book of Revelation. And some of you have expressed interest in that, so that is open. Uh, confession. I left two weeks ago. Where did I go? Alaska. Very nice, by the way. Highly recommend it. Uh, brought the weather back with me. Don't you appreciate that? Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, when I left, Susan was going to teach adultery and murder. Yes, I did dump the two hard ones off on her. Uh, and I came back, and then Mary's email said I was teaching an eye for an eye. So I spent two days preparing eye for an eye, and I opened up this morning and f saw what Susan had taught. God, what did she teach last week? Never happens in our church. So uh, I'm teaching the same material that Susan taught last week. Uh, it is interesting material. I will give it that. Uh, I am a different person, and I did spend two days putting new material into it. So, But if you really don't want to hear that stuff again and would like to step out and go to another venue, that's okay, and I will not be offended. But uh, we are going to do an eye for an eye for day. We're doing what series? Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount begins with what? The Beatitudes. Uh, and then moves into an area that are called the Antitheses, where Jesus does a series of statements that basically say this. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. This is what is known as Halakha. Jesus is involved in a discussion or a debate and some of the issues of his day. Uh, he takes tradition that comes to us from, from the Jewish faith and he's basically putting his spin on the teaching of that. Uh, the one today is the next to last. Uh, we'll end next week with what's called the Great Commandment. It's sort of the, the grand finale for that. But this is actually, I think, uh, some of the most interesting material. Now, I know that Susan covered the Luke material last week. We're not going to do that because there's so much richness in the just these very, very few verses. Uh, there's also uh, five examples that Jesus uses. We're going to focus on the first three because they're the ones that, that really are powerful. The last two are very traditional. We'll just sort of mention that. So we begin at verse 38. Jesus said th this. You have heard that it was said, probably an indication that many people could not read, and so as us others are reading Scripture, you know, they're sitting there in the synagogue listening to it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You heard that before? Very, very famous uh, Scripture. But I say to you, in other words, Jesus is saying, You've heard this is the tradition, but I want to say something about this. Move it a little bit different direction. Do not resist the evildoer. Now, that's a little counterintuitive where I live, okay? Uh, but if anyone strikes on the right cheek, turn the other also. Very famous scripture. And if anyone wants to sue you, oh, this is a popular one, <laughs> to take your coat, give your cloak as well. Give them what they ask for. Give them some more. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go also the second mile. Those are the three we really want to look at. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And if you know anything about the Old Testament Jewish tradition of the prophets, those last two should not surprise you. Now, Jesus begins with the tradition of uh, Second Temple Judaism, and particularly with some scripture. Uh, 
you've heard it said. He's, he's, he's reminding his audience there that this is not new. This is not earth-shaking. This is, this is his tradition. This is familiar territory. You've heard an eye for an eye. You've heard a tooth for tooth. Have any of you heard of the lex talionis? It's actually a principle in law. Lex in Latin would mean law. Talionis, I had to look it up. Compensation. Okay. Uh, so it's the law of compensation. When an evil or an injustice or a wrong has been done, for what can you be compensated for that? Would that still be a principle in our law? Very much so, yeah. Uh, the Lex Talionis is one of the best-known legal principles in Jewish scripture and in the Jewish tradition, and of course not just the Jewish tradition, down through the ages. It's a very basic. By the way, it's even found in Hammurabi's legal code, which predates the Bible by, by a thousand years. An eye for an eye, this is not the Ten Commandments. This is not one of the ones, as you, as you well know. Uh, but it's from the Torah, and surprisingly, it is one of the most, one of the best documented there because we actually find it three times. You know, like, for example, in the Ten Commandments, it occurs twice. You have the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and then in the second law, Deuteronomy, you have the Ten Commandments given again, slightly different, basically the same. And then in the book of Leviticus is a, a separate legal code called the Levitical Code. Those are the three major groups of laws in the Old Testament. And unlike most of the laws, and this is not even true of the Ten Commandments, the Lex Talionis is found in all three. So it stands there as a basic kind of foundational statement. So the Exodus version says this. If any harm follows an action that you've done, and it doesn't really matter whether it's intentional or unintentional, if any harm follows, then you should, you know, pay back. Well, what should you pay back? Well, if someone died, a life is demanded. If an eye is taken, another eye is taken. If you lose a tooth, you take a tooth, a hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Make sense? There's a certain amount of equity here, you know, proportional. Leviticus, this is the holiness code. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. This is a very basic kind of principle. If you cause injury to a person, the price you pay is the same injury will be done to you. Well, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. This is a basic principle. We find it in Hammurabi. We find it in these legal codes. We find it in many other places. Deuteronomy says this. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the principle makes sense. It's very, very consistent. The examples may vary a little bit, but the principle is the same. Because it's in the Torah, the understanding a Jew would have had in the day and time of Jesus was that it's uh, also, like the Ten Commandments, from God to Moses out Mount Sinai. That it has the same kind of uh, weight that the Ten Commandments would, although it's not technically from there, that this would be from God. And, of course, the goal of the Lex Talionis is kind of twofold. And this is, uh, in our society, it may not be quite as big an issue, although I would think it probably still is. But in the Middle East, have you ever heard of blood guilt? You know, and families, you know, down to the generations taking after each other. This is part of the culture of the time. Uh, on the one hand, this is simply a matter of justice. What it says uh, is that you don't have to take it. 
if you're wronged, you don't have to take it. You know, this is pre-Jesus, okay? This is pre-turn the other cheek business. Is that, is that you have the right to retribution. You have the right to strike back. That is in the law. Jewish law says you have the right, if you've been injured, harmed, to strike back. But then there's a second key, which is actually the most important one. There's a limit. You don't nuke an anthill. Okay? You know? The, the, the response must be proportional to the injury. And believe it or not, that is actually a big step forward for some people. You can't, if a somebody, you know, you suffer a slight, you don't take their life for it. The law simply guarantees that it should be proportional. And, of course, the, the point here is what we're trying to avoid is getting into this, you know, unlimited <coughs> blood feud, the individual, the family, the clan, the tribe, where there are literally, for generations, it's kind of like Hatfields and McCoys on steroids, you know. And this kind of stuff still goes on, and you're aware of that, right? In many cultures in the Middle East, this kind of stuff still very much goes on. But I say to you, uh, and this is consistent with all of the material that, that we have in the antitheses, uh, he's going to now present his particular spin or twist on this, his halakha, his interpretation, and again, as we've seen, on his own authority. He's not quoting somebody else. He's not saying, Rabbi Eliezer says, he's not even quoting a different scripture, which, by the way, he could have, but he doesn't. He basically plows to his own authority and he sets what he's teaching in dialogue with what they th themselves have heard and that's true with all the antithesis it'll be true next week this the point that he's making is just about as simple as it gets you know even though you have the right doesn't mean you have to exercise it the law says you have the right to strike back if you're wrong but the counsel jesus gives is don't do it don't resist the evildoer. Now, it's at this point this really gets interesting because this is one of those places where the original language and our language have no points of contact almost. What was being said in the original language and what this is interpreted today almost are beyond recognition in terms of being the same. If you look at any older translation of the Bible, that would include the NRSV and the NIV, you will see the translation is, do not resist. Is that familiar? Because I use the NRSV, which is what we have in our deal. The, the irony is, is that actually is very misleading. And the last four Bibles that have been translated no longer use that language because the language is, is flat out actually wrong. The Greek word, and we, we don't know what word Jesus used in Aramaic because what we really have, we have Matthew's Greek. Uh, we can assume that the Aramaic word was, was similar. But the Greek implies a little bit more than resist because to not resist something, does that imply kind of being passive? And that's kind of the, 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 the takeaway for us. You know, in other words, don't fight it, just allow it to happen, which is kind of a passive stance. The problem is, is that's not what the language means. That's not what the Greek means at all. Matter of fact, the Greek has an entirely different meaning. So the translation is actually a little unfortunate which is why more contemporary Bibles no longer translate it with it. What the word literally means is don't be hostile towards somebody, particularly to set yourself against a person. 
Now, is that different from being passive? Yeah. It's not a matter of being passive. It's a matter of do not go and be the aggressor. Do not actively strike back. And again, uh, you're not just a matter of passively lying to heaven. Now, are you all familiar with the CEB, Contemporary English Bible? Got one? Great Bible. This is the most recent translation of the Scripture that's come out, and at many, many, many levels. It's got uh, translated by Jewish scholars, Protestants, Catholic, Orthodox, Methodist, uh, Presbyterian, Lutherans, you name it. Uh, it contains the latest stuff. For example, this is the first Bible that openly acknowledges that they consulted 400 Dead Sea Scrolls for the translation because in some cases, the what translation we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls is 12 to 1400 years newer or older than the, than the original that we had beforehand. Uh, many places, uh, the Bible really stands out. This is one of them, and this is typical of that. They don't use the word resist anymore. Uh, they they they're have a more active phrasing. So this is what it says in Matthew. Now, I'm convinced it doesn't quite capture it, but it's a lot closer than what we had before. I tell you not to try to get even. Is that different? But that's exactly what the word means. It's not about just laying back and saying, oh, no, I'm not going to fight you on this. No, no, don't strike back, strike being the operative word on that. Now, there's been some interesting research with some scholars in the last 20 years who study uh, historically, sociologically the culture and trying to make sense of things like this in terms of the culture that Jesus was living in. And some very interesting things have come out of this. Uh, resistance or opposition to evil is a part of the Jewish tradition. Uh, but the real issue here that Jesus is tackling, and of course the, the Lex Talionis tries to limit it, but the real issue is, is what's the appropriate way to respond when you've been wronged? Uh, the thrust of the teaching of Jesus, there's no surprise here. This is consistent in all the teaching of Jesus and all of his actions. Um, he systematically rules out violence. There's a couple of statements in there that, that you kind of wonder about, but pretty much across the board, this is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is then going to give us five examples. If we're not to resist uh, if we're going to resist evil but not to use violence, what might that look like in your day and time? Well, he does it in his day and time. The first three we're going to look at. First, uh, what do you do when somebody slaps you on the cheek? Does that happen to you every day? <laughs> you get slapped around a lot. You know? uh, I did not know this. In the first century, it did. This is a cultural thing. In the first, in the first century, being backhanded, not the palm, backhanded by someone is something particularly poor people would experience with some frequency. It's a cultural thing. They would not be, if you're a Jew, you would not be experiencing it from a Roman. You would be experiencing it from another Jew, most likely somebody of a social group kind of above you. So his counsel is here, okay, you're walking down the road and some guy just slaps you upside the face. What do you do? Well, don't slap back. Instead, turn the other cheek. Again, culturally, for us, that sounds like a pretty passive approach, doesn't it? In the context of first century Judaism, presenting the other cheek is actually an aggressive move, not a passive move. We want to kind of explore that a little bit. On the one hand, it goes against the lex talionis. You slap me on the cheek, what have I got the right to do? 
I'm going to take you down. Okay? You know, uh, no, I can't. But I can slap you in the cheek. I can return kind for kind. Okay? I have that right. That my natural instinct would be to escalate, but the rule says I shouldn't do that. Uh, it also goes beyond simple resisting or not striking back. What's interesting about the response of Jesus is that it actually says person slaps you. You've got the right to slap them back, not to escalate. The law guarantees that. Don't slap them back. And that you could have stopped there, right? You could have just stopped. But now Jesus proposes an alternative action. Give them the other cheek. Offer that to them. See if they're willing to do that. See if they'll take you up on that. Now, what in the heck is going on there? Well, there's a lot going on here that's not really obvious when we first look at it because it's cultural. Um, in the time of Jesus being struck on the cheek with a backhand, uh, and, and by the way, it was culturally, you just did not do this. You did not slap with your hand flat. You would always slap by that. Just, just a cultural kind of thing. Uh, it's not a metaphor. It's something that happens with some frequency. Most likely, somebody with more power. It's like a lawsuit. In the ancient world, somebody with more power would likely sue somebody with less. Somebody would strike somebody not their equal, but somebody below them. Uh, in other words, this is the kind of audience that Jesus probably would be talking to. Uh, part of what's going on here, this is how you assert dominance and authority. Keep them in line. You would, you would do that to a slave. You would do that to a servant. You would do that to somebody who is socially beneath you. The, the, the goal is to keep them in line. Uh, but it's more than a physical act. It, it's actually culturally considered an insult. It's a put down. So there's the physical part of it. There's also an emotional or psychological part of it. You know, you're being kept in your place. Now, at a minimum, what Jesus is saying is a renunciation of violence at two levels. One, you don't slap back, which you've got the right to. Uh, Jewish law guaranteed you that. And two, you're going to present your other cheek, make yourself to an open strike from the other hand. Uh, now, some suggest, and the guy who actually does this is a scholar by the name of Walter Wink, who is a scholar who does a lot of sociological stuff. He's actually the guy that kind of opened this up. And Walter Wink's studies are now pretty much accepted as mainstream. He's the guy who started saying, well, should we look at what Jesus said in light of what we know about the culture and the day and time? How would people have understood who lived then with that? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a little bit what he was getting into. Uh, this is where we get the more assertive meaning. The book was called Engaging the Powers, Discernment and Resistance in a World of Domination. Um, you remember the basis of the Roman Empire? Shame and what? Drawing a blank in the other word. Shame and uh, the culture is based on that. The way you hold the culture together is you, is you shame people into, into submitting and stuff. And so he's kind of looking at that, this. The counsel is turn the other cheek if someone slaps you. Uh, if they did that, they're going to be forced to use the other hand. It's just the way it works. And if you're forced to use the other hand, all kinds of interesting things would happen. They get to be a cultural problem. If you strike the person who turned the cheek uh, and you want to strike him again, here's your dilemma. The left hand is usual used for ritually unclean purposes. This is assuming the person is a Jew. This has to do with, with, with going to the toilet, going to the bathroom. A Jew is restricted by the law, by the Talmud, by the Mishnah, and what you can. There's actually hundreds of rules about what you can do with various hands in this certain 
certain occasions. So a backhanded strike at the opposite cheek with the left hand is against the law. There are actually rules that say you cannot do that. Okay, what's your other alternative? Your other alternative is would be to slap with the inside of the hand or to punch them, which could be done. Culturally, if you're going to do that, that's what you do to an equal. You slap a subservient person with the back of your hand. You slap an equal with the front of your hand or you punch them. So what have you just message if you just sent if you slapped the second cheek? You've sent a message that you probably don't want to send. So what Jesus is saying when you present the other cheek is you say to the person who's the aggressor, treat me like an equal or break the law. Is that interesting? And that was Walter Rink's insight. And it seems to track. Other scholars have said, yeah, it seems to be what's going on. In other words, it's not a sign of weakness. It's uh, more than just a rejection of violence. It could be interpreted as being bold, demanding equality. By the way, you know these two guys? Do you know what they were about? What did they do? Yeah. They did something uh, that was uh, called nonviolent resistance. There are, and this is not in the Bible, but there are people today who look at the teaching of Jesus and says, at several points, it looks like, when you interpret it culturally, that what Jesus is advocating is a form of nonviolent resistance. He rejects violence, but he does not necessarily reject resistance. I'll just stick that out there. I'm still mulling that one over, but, you know, the kind of thing that Gandhi would do, the kind of thing Martin Luther King would do, some of the teachings of Jesus seem to fit into that category. Now, we got some more evidence that this may, in fact, Walter Wink may be, in fact, right, because I remember the Apostle Paul. He taps into Jewish tradition. He actually gets, uh, for cultural s- interpretation, he actually gets some scripture with this, too, um, where Paul reaches into the tradition and seems to have the same kind of thing that Jesus is saying. Look at Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, the, the, the lex talionis would let me curse them up one wall and down the other, as long as I didn't go over overboard. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Does that sound like a Jesus teaching? Okay, look where Paul goes. By doing this, you heap burning coals on their head. Yeah, you get the idea? There's a little bit of a passive-aggressive kind of resistance here. Now, what's interesting is I did not know this until recently. This is actually Paul quoting Scripture. This is not Paul's personal opinion. And he's, by the way, he's not quoting Jesus. He's quoting Proverbs 25. If your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. You will heap coals of fire on their heads. Which is to say that Jesus and Paul and Jewish tradition, all three have this kind of element within them. If Jesus intended his teaching to be an act of nonviolent defiance, as Walter Wink suggests, it wouldn't be that radical. He would just be advocating what Jewish scripture already advocates. We know from Proverbs that non-retaliation is also clearly part of the Jewish tradition. Even a biblical principle like Delex Talionis can be challenged and challenged from the tradition, challenged from Scripture. Here's another uh, quotation from Proverbs, which is just really interesting. 
Do not say, I will do to others as they have done to me. What is that? That's the lex talionis. Don't say, I'm going to do what the lex talionis allows me to do. I will pay them back for what they've done. In other words, you do something else. Jesus' teaching appears to be, like Proverbs, a rejection of this kind of principle that we have the right to strike back, uh, we keep it proportional, and that he stands clearly within Jewish tradition as we do that. Not surprising, there's a, there's a, at the time Jesus is alive, there's that group down on the Dead Sea, remember them? The Essenes, the Qumran. We have uh, 900 of their documents now. One of them says this from Cave 1. I will pay to no one the reward for evil. I will pursue the offender with goodness. Isn't that interesting? Contemporary with Jesus, same type of thing going on. So turning on the cheek is, is actually only one of five examples. Uh, we're going to look at, at two more, but you know we're going to uh, limit it to bodily injury. Second example takes and extends it to something else, you know, lawsuits. How do we handle that? Well, the, this is another place where the, the example can be very, very misleading because the situation that Jesus is talking about physically, physically, could not happen. I want to talk about that, so <laughs> which means that something else is going on. If someone sues you for your coat or tunic, now what is a coat or tunic? Outer garment? That's how I would interpret it. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It does not mean the outer garment. Underwear. Somebody's going to sue you for your underwear. <laughs> now, if you're going to give them your underwear, what else do you have to take off? Okay, you see where this is going? It, it's really interesting, and it's very misleading in English. Of course, the new Bible straightens it up a little bit. Uh, Jesus says, give it to them. Don't stop there. Give them your cloak as well. By the way, in the ancient world, now I don't know about you, but if I'm dressed and it's a cold day, how many layers am I going to have? More than one, more than two. In the ancient world, there were only two garments. An outer garment and an undergarment. That's all most people would ever wear, even the wealthy. So if you hand them the outer garment with the undergarment, what's left? Hello. Okay. Uh, <coughs> Again, it's not, it's not clear, and the English word coat does not help. Uh, we mean by coat a, an outer garment. Uh, and so this reading would supply, okay, the guy's going to sue you for your coat. Big deal. Give him the darn coat. Because I've still got pants, shirt, shoes, socks, underwear. I've got all that kind of left. Uh, and I'm still fully clothed. And in fact, that's not what's going on. That is not what's being said. Um, Jesus world people only wore two articles of clothing. There's a coat or a, a tunic. It's an outer garment. There's a Greek word for that. And there's a, an inner garment and an outer garment. That's what people are wearing. What's being asked for, according to Matthew, is the chiton. And chiton is not what you would see in public. It's the undergarment that's underneath. Jesus is referring to what we would simply call underwear. And again, the CEB today actually does a, a it doesn't quite clean it up all the way because they don't give the idea that it's underwear because you think you're wearing more than two levels of clothes is still a little confusing. But this is what it says. If someone sues you for your shirt, give up your coat as well. Now, you wear your shirt under your coat, right? So it gets that part right. But, but the part that's still confusing is you think that they still got something left. So the translation 
gets part of the idea across, but not the complete picture. Uh, and again, the point that Jesus is trying to make, um, if they're going to ask for your inner garment, give it to them and let them keep the outer garment that you had to take off as well. And it's simply going to leave you nude. Now, do you know anything about Judaism and nudity? It's a biggie. Being nude within Jewish tradition is anathema. You simply do not do that. A lot of our Puritan kind of ideas come from our kind of tradition. It's a big cultural taboo. It's, in other words, it's designed to be humiliating. God takes you to court and says, give me your underwear. And if he wins, you've got to strip down and be naked in public. Uh, and that's designed to humiliate you. Just like the slap of the, the back of the hand. Um, probably, Walter make another say, this is not something that somebody would have done to an equal. It's probably what somebody would have done. But for example, who's likely to go to court and sue in the ancient world? Yeah. Somebody that's got some means, that knows about lawyers and stuff like that. So that this is probably Jesus is using this example because he's talking to people who have been sued, but probably are not the ones who do the suing. They've been the victims of this kind of thing. And it happened a lot in the ancient world. Uh, and again, they're being sued for their underwear because it's literally all they have. Jesus' advice, hand it over. Stand there naked in front of them. And what kind of a message is that going to send? That's humiliating for you. But what kind of a message does it send about the guy who would do that to you? Yeah. It makes the person who sued you look totally reprehensible in that culture. So it, it, it's interesting. It, it's, a, it's actually an aggressive move. Uh, turning the other cheek sets up a situation that's not advantage the one suing. Taking both garments would violate the law. We've got the part from Exodus here that says, by the way, if you ever do sue a person and you get their garment, you've got to give it back to them by the time the sun goes down. Because that's all they got. And they could freeze to death. So what good does it do to sue a person for the garment when you can't even keep it overnight? type thing. So, you know, it just sort of sets up that dynamic. Like turning the other cheek, handing the cloak and the shirt over would not be a sign of submission. It could be seen as non-violent defiance. Some contemporary psychological terms, passive aggressive, you know, kind of getting back. Um, again, breaks the law, reflects badly on the person. Uh, you're left nude culturally. Uh, that does not reflect on the person who's nude. It reflects the person who would put another person in that situation. Both cases, whoever initiates this is a despicable human being. And again, what we have here is a turning of the tables. And by the way, this business of turning of the tables is a, is a major feature. Remember Jesus says the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He says the one who would rule must be the one that serves. So a major theme in the teaching of Jesus is this turning over. Um, the Beatitudes, you have all this reversal language. So this seems to be more of the same. Something going on. Third example. Again, something that we're not likely to encounter, but in the ancient world, this is not just Romans. Uh, you could uh, face this anywhere in the world and even centuries before Rome. Actually goes back to the Persian period. Here's the rule. A conquering army is coming through your country. They have the right, the legal right, not just the right of might, but the legal right to basically co-opt you and say you have to help us. So the specific rule is a Roman soldier had the right to say you, 
come over here. You're going to carry this for me for one month. And you had no choice. Even your own law said that you had to do that. So what's the, what's the counsel of Jesus? Give them the mile. By the way, give them two. Um, now, Palestine is an occupied country. It's under the oppression of Roman rule. Uh, we have one example. Remember the story of Simon of Cyrene? Jesus is carrying the cross. He stumbles. They draft this guy. Says you will carry the cross for him. Uh, by the way, do you think the example of the here that Jesus uses, when a Roman asks you to do something, these are the occupiers who have taken our country over, give it to them and give them another. Do you think that's a real popular thing to say? I'm thinking of all the things Jesus says here, this is the one people would have the most trouble with. Uh, but what would it do? If a Roman asked you to do that and you did what Jesus said, what would be the outcome of that? One of the things is it might diffuse the tendency towards violence. Because there are some people who would say, over my dead body, is that Roman going to do that to me? So all these examples seem to be there. Now the last two are just very, very traditional. Uh, I'm just going to lay them out there for you. You give to those who beg. You loan to those in need. Tons of scripture in the Torah and other places that basically say, this is what Jews do. It's the first three examples that stand out. Because they all have something in common. They all deal with situations where someone has become the victim, likely of a more powerful person's actions upon their life. And so they're being victimized by that. They're being struck. They're being sued. They're being forced to help the enemy. And collectively, these examples on nonviolence uh, take it to a level that we simply do not see in any other teacher of Jesus' time. We have lots of writings, a lot. Not only do we not resist, we go beyond what is required. And if this happens, and if it happens to put the pursuer in a bad light, that's eh, not a bad thing, right? That's okay. But there's something else going on here. Jewish tradition, the lex talionis has tried to limit retaliation. By the way, does the lex talionis work? Sometimes. All the time, absolutely not. Uh, does not work in all situations, but people tend to escalate. Sermon on the Mount Jesus seems to be systematically rejecting retaliation, violence. He offers an alternative, not just limit it, but it's better to suffer wrong than to speed. Have you ever heard the term the spiral of violence? You know, somebody does something, somebody strikes back, strike, 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 and it, be, be, it you know, any examples in the world you can think of right now? like Gaza yeah it's just around and around we go and it gets worse and worse and all kinds of people suffer if you look at the teaching of Jesus what he's what he's saying seems to be an attempt to break the cycle of violence you know even if your law says you can don't it's not a good thing it does not get you where you want to go and so try not to do that um, and again do you remember the garden of Gethsemane do you remember his trial Peter takes a sword. He's going to do the lex talionis. Okay. Jesus says, put your sword away, those who live by the sword. What by the sword? Die or perish by the sword. His trial, he had all kinds of opportunity to strike back. He simply died. It seems to be consistent across, uh, across the board. Now, in Matthew, this section we just looked at is very closely related to two other teachings that we want to look at next week. The love commandment, particularly a particular form of it. You remember love your enemy? 
Okay? And then there is the golden rule, do unto others. Uh, in Matthew, the love commandment, immediately the command to love your enemies immediately follows what we just looked at. And then the golden rule is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So next week, we want to kind of telescope these together and kind of look at it, kind of bring the antitheses to an end with this uh, affirmation of love. So next week, the climax, the antithesis, the great commandment, the golden rule. I know that Susan has not taught those, so we <laughs> should be in good shape. <laughs>